Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and you know, the general tone of this episode is probably going to be, that's more like it. Germany have just taken down Portugal 4-2. The future is bright for them again. Well, you know, it's brightish. Uh, and well, Nick Wildhagen, you're here with me. You're, you're ready to podcast in a more positive posture. I heard you listen to my edition with uh, Matthew Marshall from a couple of days ago where we were, you know, writing, writing Germany's death warrant. And, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong. I did indeed. I mean, I, I, you know, what I said in the preview episode for the uh, non-comprehensive Euro 2020 preview in 2021 or whatever we called it was the fact that I thought that um, Portugal, yes, they look good in attack and yes, they are going to score at least a goal per match. But at the end of the day, you when you look at them in defense, you think... Well, there's actually some some possibilities there for for Germany to have some fun, and indeed that is what Germany did in this match. Yeah, there was a lot of fun to be had, and you actually saw, you know, other than than Kai Havertz, who <laughs> never seems to have a lot of fun, even when he's scoring goals. Everyone had had much more of a smile on their face and a lot more energy. I've seen some smiles on your face during this call. You have you been enjoying uh, Euro twenty twenty in twenty twenty one? Actually, I, I, I have. Um, crazy as it sounds, I think it's, it's good to see that. Um, we're able to have fans back at the, the stadiums. It's, it's great to hear stadium noises that aren't fake. Yes, it's a, it's still a crazy proposition to have this tournament played over 14 countries, but, um, hey, I, I'm enjoying the football. Yep, yep. I have a lot of, uh, meh feelings about international football, uh, during the non-main tournament times, especially when you get bogged down in the nations you know, league. and various nations, nations, leagues of nations. But when this, uh, the big time rolls around, it's hard not to get caught up in the fun. Anyway, we're going to take a, a quick break to reset things. And when we come back, we're going to look at Germany's big win. We're going to look at the lay of the land in group F because uh, the plot has definitely thickened this weekend. And we'll talk about much, much more. Let's get started with uh, our, our sort of quick take review slash uh, where things stand with Germany after this big 4-2 win in Munich over Portugal. I think I've been on the record in a podcast form, in fact, that I was not very confident heading into this game. I saw a pretty whatever Germany against France. Granted, that was against France. We all know what that means. But it was, it was, it was a performance that was more reminiscent of the somewhat purposeless and somewhat plodding Germany that we've seen over the last, you know, three, four years than what we saw instead, which was a Germany that had a lot more energy and attack that seemed to use width in a really intelligent way. I was impressed. I was, I was pleased. How are you feeling? Yeah, you know, I, I listened to your chat with Andrew Bressel before the match against France, and uh, he said that whatever way he was plotting his uh, predictions for the Euros, uh, whatever he did, the final came out being Portugal against France. And uh, obviously, uh, that makes France uh, one of the favorites to win the tournament and Portugal the other. And Germany had to play them both. I think the performance against France uh, was, yes, pretty meh. I, I 
was not getting bringing Timo Werner onto the pitch and then going for a lot of crosses into the area because that's not really where his strength lies. Additionally, I th- thought that the set pieces against France were abysmal. And Germany got off to a really bad start against its Portugal in this match because there was another abysmal set piece by Toni Kroos, which ended up in a counter-attack that Germany really... I think it was a three-on-three situation, which was really defended in a dreadful manner. And yes, the German defense is prone to do that, and that is probably going to be the, the downfall of them during that tournament in, at some point. But they didn't lose their calm, they didn't lose their cool, and they prevailed. Because up until that point in the 15th minute when that goal by Ronaldo was scored... Germany uh, was actually the dominant side and they continued to do so and uh, funnily enough they got two own goals uh, that came after hard crosses just in front of goal to go into the dressing room with a lead and uh, it's actually kind of funny that Germany have both scored an own goal themselves and been at the other end get you know getting an advantage from own goals uh, that actually makes them the first team in the Euros history to both score an own goal themselves and have the advantage of the opposition scoring an own goal, which is kind of a funny Euro stat, if you want. So, um, yes, the first half, uh, all in all, good performance. And, oh boy, that, that second half, it really started off well for them, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think there was a little a little bit of, of you still have something to prove after that first half. I mean, I don't want to say that those own goals meant nothing. I mean... Partially because both of those own goals were not necessarily recognized as own goals until people started watching uh, a slow motion replay because both of them were very much in the same neighborhood as as Germany players who could just as easily have, have put the ball in themselves had things gone in a different way. So I, I don't want to say those own goals meant nothing, but they were still own goals. So Germany, you know, had a 2-1 lead, but it was good to see them come out and, you know, Put a bit of an exclamation point on things in the second half, and, and and in part, that also had to do with you know how they did it and who did it. I mean, we saw basically some of the people like Kai Havertz, who we thought scored the first goal, got one of his own for real. Gozens, who had you know threatened to score in the opening minutes, but his you know his his goal was offside, got a a goal. I mean, it was basically a lot of the players who hadn't quite put the end product together in the first half, but had looked threatening, getting the payoff, I thought. Yeah, and uh, going back to you, that show that you recorded with uh, Matthew Marshall, you actually talked about the fact that if you can get in behind the backs on, on, on the wings, there's a lot of joy to be had for the opposition team facing Portugal. And that's exactly what Germany did. So... I know he's sort of frowned upon. I know that people think that he's a lame duck, but uh, you have to give credit to Jogi Löw for spotting that and, you know, clearly creating a plan that was working out rather well because um, all things considered, Germany was, you know, they were worth their four goals during that match, I thought. Um, Yes, there were some shaky moments. Yes, Renato Sancho had a a shot that hit the post when uh, Portugal was training 2-4. But at the end of the day, the better team won. And, um, you know, Germany finally has arrived in the tournament, uh, as Leon Goretzka put it on Twitter. And, uh, you know, um, during France, they were seemingly still stuck in traffic. But uh, now now they're there. Yeah, it's interesting because 
I feel like the tone of some of, of what we have put out prior to the first two games, as well as, to be frank, what's been going on in the German media as well, has been a pretty pessimistic, a pretty muddled, a pretty frustrated tone or has had those things. Because that's what we've all come accustomed to, to feel about Germany over the last several years. And, and even looking at the lineup when that was, was put out ahead of this game, seeing that Joachim Löw, who is nothing if not incredibly stubborn in his, his views on, you know, how football should be played and or who should be played where, sometimes that's idiosyncratic and, and, and good. Sometimes it seems, totally off base. I looked at that and saw that it was, you know, he was just going to run it back with the same group as as uh, against France. And I thought that this had a real, you know, this had a real ominous look to it. I, I, I was impressed with the first several minutes. They could have gone up very early. But then seeing that goal that Portugal scored, which, you know, you, you already brought up that was a, basically a, a quick counter after a, a poor free kick, that was basically the kind of goal that France would have scored had they not been offside when they scored them. I mean, th- this was this was the textbook way of, of picking Germany off, as, as you mentioned. And it was really encouraging to see this group basically pick themselves up and said, you know what, we've, we've been dominating this game. If we keep doing the things that we're doing, we have a very good chance of winning. And, and even, even when stubbornness and that sort of banging your head against the wall had been Germany's problem the last, you know, whether it's last years or last couple of games, the, the breakthrough had to feel very, very good for them, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we also should give credit to the fact that Jogliff was a little bit more flexible in his tactics in this match than compared against France. We've actually got a question in on Twitter by uh, Tim Snodden, who asks us, uh, should Germany play in this 3-4-3 formation or should they go for back four or is this entire issue of, of the formation overblown? And my answer to that would be, uh, listen, formations, they're useful in a way of showing you how a team is set up if it's set up defensively or attackingly but at the end of the day a 3-4-3 formation can look very different from time to time depending on what sort of roles you ask your players to fill out and how you move your players along and in this match you actually saw that you know what Kimmich was not always necessarily down the right flank getting a little, little more action in, in the center of the pitch which is really his forte and, you know, if you have a bit more flexibility for a 3-4-3 system, could work. I know that Jürgen Klopp went out in, in the German press before the match saying that he would play back four and that he would have a central midfield with the Gunuan, uh, Kimmich and Kroos. But, and adding that, but you know what, I would, I would have also lost against France because they're the best team on earth right about now. <laughs> Maintaining his nice guy image whilst shitting all over Jürgen Löw. Basically, but you know, I, I think that Jurgen Klopp actually learned a few lessons from that match against France, and he should get credit for that. And uh, putting all feelings aside over the what, what what's been going on over the last three years, because it hasn't necessarily always been pretty. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I too am not terribly worked up about the uh, the three four three idea, in in large part as as you said because they've already shown a degree of, of flexibility. You, you saw at times, 
Joshua Kimmich would would drift inside and and you know Matthias Ginter looked like a right back in some of his positioning uh, at, at certain stages of the game, and really, if if you if you take it that way and you think of of perhaps Ginter playing a bit more a bit wider at times and Gozens who of course you know he, he basically lives up the pitch anyway. He's going to be an attacking, you know, wing back or fullback, whichever way you want to look at it. I don't think it's it's all that crucial what name you give these players because I think some of them are, are basically going to be occupying very different space than what the the, the sort of lines on paper are going to look like anyway. I, I haven't seen the like heat maps from this game or anything like that, but I I figure that the average positions for them is probably not going to look strictly like a three four three anyway. No. Uh, we should get those Amazon uh, uh, average positions for the Euros, but we don't. We don't. <laughs> exactly. Where's AWS when you need them? I guess that's only Bundesliga. Let's talk about Robin Gosens for a moment because he had a monster game. A monster game. He basically, you know, had a goal. He had, I guess you could look at his, uh, you know, do, you, do, they, do you get assists for own goals? If you do, he probably, probably should get some. He was probably the most dangerous attacker for Germany, or at least he got himself into more positions that caused Portugal more problems than just about anybody else. And, you know, he plays elsewhere. He doesn't play in the Bundesliga. He plays in Serie A for Atalanta, which means he is not as much in the public eye in Germany, and he's certainly not in in my eyes as much because I you know, I watch a, a Serie A game every once in a while, but not a lot. How have you been enjoying his role with this team? I think he's he's really if there's if there's one player who's sort of come into the side since the last World Cup who has sort of made a certain position his own, it's got to be him. Yeah, I mean, there was um, a tweet by uh, Nikolai Lisberg who pointed out that. Um, during the last few years, that position that Gosens played has been occupied by Hector, Philip Max, Emre Shan, and Nico Schulz. And he added that while it took Love a while to see the light, it was worth the wait because now Robin Gosens is playing in that position. And yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've seen a, a couple of Champions League matches with Atlanta, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. which has mostly seen them defending against stronger oppositions. But, uh, you know, going by his stats, uh, he's actually quite a productive player in Serie A. You see that he quite clearly is a, is, is a goal threat and that he is a, an attacking-minded player. And uh, add to that the fact that, you know, he's not really taking the traditional route into professional football. Absolutely not. I'm, I'm actually looking at his, you know, career and he didn't play for anybody in the professional level. In Germany, he's never played at the professional level in Germany. He's all been in in either uh, the Netherlands or Italy. Yes, and um, you know, I mean, he's he's been the sort of guy who still went out drinking with his mates when he was nineteen twenty, and uh, that's not necessarily the sort of thing that any of these other guys on the pitch down there has done, because most of them, pretty much all of them, have been to Nachwuchsleistungszentren, which means that they leave a very uh, sort of uh, <laughs> sportman-like uh, life. Oh yeah, they're they're cloistered. They're they're like uh, part of a part of a closed-off class. People who do that. So they drink agua, not coke or beer. But if, maybe if they're feeling really, they want to push the boat out. They might have a 
Apfelschorle or something, you know? That's when they're feeling a bit <laughs> naughty. A bisschen zu viel Zucker. Yes, so Robin Gosen is definitely, um, he's actually written an autobiography, by the way, um, which I'm, I'm dying to get my hands yeah, on. Yeah, me too, and, me too. Uh, he's, he seems to be a, a, a great guy, and B, he seems to be bringing an attacking threat to Germany on that position that we haven't necessarily been seeing there in in the last few years and and that that is a good thing and uh yeah absolutely monster game and scored a goal that which was uh you know uh not given because of an offside position by Nabry, i think and then he went on to score this beautiful header uh i mean you know the way he jumps up and the way his entire body moves is it's incredible absolutely terrific game and uh Yeah, I think he's he's going he's he's probably going to be a, a player that is going to stick around in the national team for for quite a few years, and uh, it's not necessarily been a given, as uh, you see from that tweet by Nikolai Lisberg, which pointed out that there have been many players filling out that role for for the last few years. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the next few years of his career hold. Certainly, Atalanta, great club. They are establishing themselves in sort of the, the, the top tier in, in Italy over the last several seasons. So I don't want to like push him toward a move or whatever. But it really seems to me that like if he ever wanted to come back to Germany, he could probably just about write his 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 check wherever he wants to play. Someone would would probably have him. He was he was close to joining Schalke, I think, at one point, and uh, thank God that he didn't <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, not to to you know uh, be nasty to any Schalke fans listening to the podcast, but yeah, I think he he would definitely be a player that would be a welcome addition to the Bundesliga. And uh, as for Atlanta, yeah, what a great club and what great fans. I mean, they're one of the few ultra groups in Italy that is actually left leaning. And uh, that is definitely something that uh, we should uh, mention in a positive light because Italian football and Italian ultras are not necessarily the sort of boys you want to spend an evening with. Yeah, yeah. Unless maybe you're a, a Hungary national team ultra. Well, well, we'll get to we'll get to them uh, in time. There's a bit of fadesh in, in in those ultras, isn't there? But uh, yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, there were some photographs on, on Pastor on Twitter with them marching to the stadium uh, for the game against France with signs expressing their their displeasure with the uh, the recent. Popularity of of players kneeling uh, prior to uh, to matches because you know why would you want to you know sort of uh, express yourself uh, against racism and discrimination? Why would you want to do a thing like that? Uh, that's 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 unHungarian. Yeah, why would you? Why why would you? Um, uh, yes, I've 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 been to I've been to Hungary on on many many occasions. It's it's a great country and um, yeah, it's lovely. It's really nice. I mean, the problem, of, well, not the problem, but but what you have to know about Hungary is that if you're going to big cities like Győr or Budapest, you actually get a really sort of liberal population there and open-minded population there, and you can go to gay bars and enjoy a night out. But um, that's not necessarily the case for the rural part of Hungary. Where have I heard that sort of uh, description before? Uh, Texas. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, Wisconsin for that matter. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the other uh, standouts from this game, and and you know who sort of solidified their uh, their place in this team, who might still need to think about making room for somebody else. I mean, certainly Leon Goretzka is, is aside from I don't know the discussion over Jozebek Kimmich's role 
either as a as a right back or as a central midfielder. The inclusion or not inclusion of of Leon Goretzka has been definitely a big topic in the German press. You have to take that with the grain of salt that you know he wasn't even available for the first game, and and you know Joachim Löw considered him not ready to start in this game, but he came in in the second half. I thought he played quite well. He played in a very sort of positive way, in a way that I feel like I love Tony Kroos, I love Ilkay Gundogan, but he's a very different player than those guys. And I feel like including Goretzka moving forward might be an interesting uh, interesting thing. What do you reckon? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a, he's a great box-to-box player and he has um, the ability to score goals as well as to create danger going forward. And he is, is the sort of player who always can find the right pass. And that is something that was actually lacking in the game against France because there was nobody who had that, what you, what the Germans call the can opener because Germany was sort of knocking their heads against the wall and trying to find that right pass for 80 plus minutes. And then they decided, oh, well, let's go for crosses and a Hail Mary instead. And, and that didn't work out spectacularly well either. So Leon Goreska is definitely a, a player who gives Joachim Löw a, few more strings to play on but I mean it's sort of like dependent on the opponent really I think he could very well turn out to be a crucial player during the knockout stages because I think he's probably not going to feature from the start against Hungary either I think Löw is probably going to stick with his both his formation and with his tactics and uh, with the same set of players basically and you know that that leaves Goretzka on the bench but uh, hey he, he can always come in now and sort of fill out a crucial role and and Having that sort of uh, ability on the bench as well is is worth its weight in gold. I, w- I would imagine. All right, let's pause here, and we can we can pick up some of these strands a bit more sort of pointedly toward the uh, the the Hungary game to come, as well as uh, how how Hungary are, are looking now, having uh, earned a draw against France in just a moment. Okay, we are back now. We're going to be talking a little bit about how Germany might be setting themselves up for their match against Hungary, both on the pitch, off the pitch, as you will hear, as well as as, as what Hungary might be sort of thinking or able to accomplish now that they have a, a bit of a feather in the cap result, a draw against France. First thing that comes to mind, I think we should probably talk about that um, about that draw with France, which I think came as a huge surprise to, you know, world football because it's, it's, it's Hungary and France, man. It's, it's, you know, it's the, the world champions and probably favorites for this tournament against a team who scraped in through a, a playoff win against Iceland. That's no sniff at Hungary who really, I think of, of, of all those teams who made it in by the skin of their teeth have probably comported themselves better than, than a number of others in the tournament. What did you make of that result? I, I know that this was not a game. I think you've, you had a, you know, you had a birthday party to go to for a certain, certain young lad. So you didn't necessarily get to, 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 to watch it in detail, but the fact that they were able to, you know, keep France from running all over them was pretty great. It was indeed. And well, Antony Griezmann, uh, I saw him speaking after the match and he said it's it's really 
unusual to come back to 68,000 spectators in the stands and uh, not being able to hear one another on the pitch as we didn't. And we really struggled with that. And um, maybe we should keep that in, the mi- in, in our minds for, for the how we talk about the Portugal-Germany match as well, because I think the match against Hungary was actually really draining for Portugal, even though the scoreline looked very clear. Hungary got a goal ruled out for narrow of sight against uh, against Portugal, uh, which would have been the 1-0 goal for them. Portugal got all their goals in the dying moments of the match, basically, in the last 10 minutes, when Hungary utterly fell apart once uh, Portugal started scoring. But until that point, they actually had some pinprick attacks and they looked decent in defense. And they were really frustrating Portugal to a big degree. And... Um, Hungary was once again in front of their own fans to do the same with France. And this time they got a goal and it wasn't ruled out for offside. Uh, Attila Fiola, who scored. And France really found it difficult to get back into the match and um, to create anything really. So having had that experience is uh, for for Hungary, uh, playing in front of their own fans and playing in front of their home crowd in, in front of such a huge audience in these COVID times, given the last one and a half years for what it's been like for most footballers. Yes, I, I believe, Griezmann, that it was difficult to adapt and that it clearly favoured the other side. So for me, um, I wouldn't read too much into the results in terms of what kind of team France is and how strong they are. But for me, it means that Hungary basically had had two match balls to get good results against bigger opponents with a massive home advantage, uh, a home advantage that hasn't been that clear over the last few years because, you know, football has become more and more professional. But in these circumstances, it actually is more clear. And now Hungary is traveling to Munich. Yeah, not only are they traveling to Munich, to the Allianz Arena or or. Fußball Arena München, as, as UEFA would have it. What is the story with, uh, you know, the, the, the big, the big tire, you know, the, the, the sort of bubble light array situation on the outside of that, uh, iconic stadium? What's it going to look like for the game against Hungary? It's going to be in rainbow colors, uh, which, uh, you know, going by Bayern's close connections to Qatar is a bit ironic. Because, you know, try to be an openly gay person in Qatar. Uh, you're not going to get far, are you? Well, I, I bet um, if you're rich enough, it's probably okay. You know, it's kind of how Qatar operates. Rich enough, it's sort of like, a, sort of like a, a situation like in, in Roman days, probably, when, you know, as, as uh, Gore Vidal would put it, you were either pretty or not. It didn't matter what sex you were. But um, if you're an average guy, yeah, you're probably going to get stoned, quite literally. But be that as that may, it's, it's sort of a sign directed at, at Viktor Orban, uh, who is uh, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who is sort of tightening his dictatorial grip around this nation uh, further and further. He actually passed, uh, there was actually a law passed uh, during COVID times, which uh, basically allowed him to rule by decree, which was, uh, you know, the, the reasoning behind that law, according to the government, was was that it was a situation of crisis and Hungary needed to be able to act fast and swiftly and that meant that Viktor Orban should be given all powers available to him and um, it's basically a, a well uh, it's basically a nasty power grab opposition in Hungary is, is really f- splintered but now they're sort of teaming up and trying to get Orban out of office for the next elections uh, we'll see how that goes but uh, 
obviously it's um <laughs> it's scary time for for the lgbtq plus community in 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 hungary because um it's uh, that Victor Orban isn't a friend of them, and he has passed several laws that disadvantaged them. I mean, there's a law passed that stated that marriage is defined between men and women, cannot be defined between men and men, or women and women, or you know, on any other kind of shape or form. Um, additionally, now they've, they've passed a law that uh, outlaws the promotion of homosexualities to minors, which means that basically all sort of educational uh, programs that would focus on that you know it's okay to be gay those have gone out the window so they're really sort of starting to start up a nasty campaign against that community um which is sort of reminiscent of what's going on in poland at the same time with uh, with the piss party and uh yeah it's, it's important that signs are s- set against this sort of against this these sort of initiatives by by strongmen like Orban because we're talking about the fact that people are shamed for something that is perfectly natural and they're put into positions that is that are un, unhealthy and um, it's it's really a tragedy that such laws are passed in the 21st century yeah yeah indeed I um, I'm really glad to hear in in that context that, that I think you know, many of us are sort of passingly familiar with, but don't know the details of. And that's really, it, I'm glad you were able to sort of bring us up to speed on some of that. Uh, I'm really glad to hear that, uh, <laughs> you know, whoever is, is the part of the organizing group in Munich is able to sort of get that message across. You know, uh, UEFA is not always all that flexible with, um, expressions of, of anything that they consider to be politically controversial. I don't think that that should be politically controversial, standing up for, you know, individual rights, human rights, you know, personhood, bodily freedom. This should be, you know, self, uh, self evident, but it isn't to everybody. So yeah, let's, let's make the Allianz Arena, uh, as rainbow as we can this week. Okay. Quickly, I was just thinking ahead to this game against Hungary and, and sort of recognizing that, you know, a lot of these Hungary guys, especially their sort of key performers, Peter Gulacsi, uh, Vili Orban, Roland Shaloy, and, you know, I don't know what's going on with Adam Salai. Uh, he started he, at least he, in the match against, uh, against he, Portugal. He did. He, he started against, against France as well, but he was withdrawn in the first half. I think he might have suffered a concussion, so it's possible he might have to miss the next game. Uh, along with uh, Werder Bremen legend, uh, Laszlo Kleinheisler. Ooh. These are a bunch of guys who are familiar not only to Germany, but in some cases, familiar with Germany, they will have played against a lot of these uh, these folks in the Bundesliga. I think, as you've mentioned, Hungary have 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 benefited enormously from having a, a full vociferous crowd at their backs. What do you rate their their chances as in this game against uh, against Germany in uh, a foreign location? Um, I think the outlook and the situation for for those for this match is also completely difficult uh, different for them because in the matches against Portugal and France it was okay to get a draw it was okay to you know lose uh, after fighting for 82 minutes and you know them being caught out by you know a ridiculous goal but now they actually go to the Allianz Arena away from home and they have to win in order to progress 
And how are they going to do that? I mean, at some point, they need to attack in order to get that win. And going down that list of players, you think, okay, there's some quality here, and they deserve to be at the Euros. But they're probably not going to be good enough to put Germany under any sort of serious trouble if they are the ones who have to make the game. And that's quite clearly working in in Germany's favor here because Germany, with four points, well, they're probably going to be all right in terms of, you know, gaining that third place. And Germany with six points could even win the group, depending on how the Portugal-France match works out. And Portugal-France, both of these sides are probably going to go through with a draw, which means that, well, they're not going to risk an awful lot, either one of them. So, really, all all cards are stacked against Hungary in, in this one from the outlook. And going by, by the quality of the Germany squad, I think Germany should be fine. Yep, yep, I think so too. I guess a little food for thought that I uh, have is that Hungary have a lot of experience. You know, basically their game plan for every game in this group is going to be some variation on, you know, absorb pressure and break quickly. And they have shown themselves to be fairly good at that. Obviously, they don't have the same quality of, of you know, a Portugal or a France. So they, they, they've been sort of pushed into that strategy. And, you know, you're probably going to have to do that through the likes of, of your, uh, your, your Shaloi instead of your Salai, because one of them is fast and one of them is not. Uh, but, you know, Roland, Roland Shaloi, he, We've seen him both in this tournament for Hungary and we've seen him at, at, uh, at Freiburg. Uh, he's quick and he has a shot on him. It's, he's not an elite player. He's not somebody who's necessarily going to, you know, punish you every time he gets a decent chance. But on his day, yeah, he can score some goals. He can, he can make some noise. So I think Germany better be careful. They probably need to be, you know, they might need to sort of watch themselves a little bit. But um, I could also I could see this game being tight and and you know scored one goal for for Hungary and things going very unluckily for Germany. I could also see Germany winning this one, you know, big. So I mean, it all depends on the first few moments of the match, really. If if Germany gets that first goal of the match, as you saw in the match against Portugal, oh yeah, yeah. If Hungary can't chase this game, the floodgates are going to open when Hungary has to chase that lead. If it's tied for 60, 70 minutes, well, that that is when it's starting to get scary, really. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. All right, okay, so we've talked about Germany and their group for quite some time. I think it's probably time to talk a little bit about the rest of the tournament through a, through a Bundesliga lens. That's easy enough. I mean, I've, I've been very impressed at um, all the goal contributions by uh, Bundesliga players in this tournament and, and, and what a what a central role they've played in so many cases. Um, <laughs> although there, there's been some exceptions. There's been certain managers who have been perturbingly unwilling to play their Bundesliga superstars for anything more than, than brief cameos. I'm, I'm really only looking at one person. I'm looking at Gareth Southgate. I don't like to look at him. He's not that nice to look at. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm looking at him right now. And I'm just, I, I know that, like, I live in a Bundesliga bubble. And, like, you know, many of the people who I follow on Twitter also live in that bubble. But, like, 
I'm beginning to recognize that I and everyone else in this bubble that I live in are not the only ones, strictly, who think it's really stupid and weird that <laughs> Jaden Sancho can't get on the field for England, a team who has not proven themselves to be an overwhelming attacking force. It's 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 bizarre. It's it's funny because I, I was watching the the game on on Norwegian television, obviously, and the commentator. Uh, for this match, uh, he uses, usually commentates on the Premier League. Oh, yeah. So when it came to time to make some substitutions, it was all about when he's, when he's going to bring on Jack Raylish. When he's, when, Jack Raylish, when, he, when, when's he coming on? Oh, yeah. The, Jack Raylish. The when, ESPN when, people in the States are the same way. They got a bunch of, you know, you know as I went to, mentioned one time, a bunch of moldy old Brits over there banging on about Grealish. You know, my thought was like, you don't want to bring on Jack Grealish, no offense, if you have Jaden Sancho. But obviously, Gareth Southgate tended to agree with the moldy British guys. And um, I mean, usually that when you start agreeing with them, that's your downfall as a national manager for Team England. Because that's when you are going to get results going against you, and that's when you only draw against Scotland, and that's when you lose matches against nations like Iceland. Southgate hasn't necessarily been prone to those errors before in the past. I mean, look at how far England went in that World Cup in 2018. And you sort of... There sort of has always been a ghost of 1966 over that English national team, because it hasn't never won anything since. But with him, you thought maybe, maybe just maybe that ghost was gone. But with the decisions he made against Scotland, uh, with excluding Sancho from the starting lineup and excluding him when it came time to make his substitutions, you think, well, maybe that ghost still is alive and well. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the success that they had in the first game against uh, Croatia you know, it was a win, but it wasn't a thundering win. Probably got him to him thinking that his lineup was better than it was. You know, he basically ran out a very similar group. You know, the only changes he made were were at the back and not in in midfield or up front. And and he probably should have. And he he only used two subs in that Scotland game. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking there, considering they were uh, <laughs> looking to win that game and should have won that game and had way more talent. I think I think actually Scotland Scotland looked like the most likely side to win yeah, this one absolutely. towards the end, absolutely. and they even had a had a ball headed off the line towards the end of the game there. And um, I mean, all credit to Scotland who came out uh, were not favourites to win this. I mean, I think the odds for for um, uh, Scotland win were, were mm, one to nine. I think. I mean, you would have you would have almost gained one thousand percent if you bet on Scotland and that won of what you've put down and um, you know for them to look actually like the more likely winners as the game progressed is quite an accomplishment but it leaves Scotland with just one point and um, a group final against Croatia and it leaves England in a actually rather comfortable position because four points even if you finish third you're probably guaranteed to go through yeah and they better not count on winning against uh, Czechia because Another Bundesliga uh, standout in this tournament, Patrick Schick, is uh, kind of on fire right now. This is this is the Patrick Schick that 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 both Leipzig and Leverkusen had been waiting to see. Yeah, I mean uh, to to coin it into uh, 
in, into British terms, uh, he's been bloody good. Yeah, he's scored three goals so far, one from the spot. Uh, obviously, he was uh, he was bleeding heavily from his nose after he'd got an elbow to his face uh, as he jumped up in, in, in the penalty box. And uh, yeah, uh, bleeding heavily from his nose, still scoring and uh, scoring both goals against uh, against uh, in Scotland, Croatia, but against Scotland. Yeah, one of them a beauty from uh, well, almost almost the halfway line. Yeah, he's he's had an excellent game, and um, well, in Leverkusen, he's not necessarily always been given the chance to shine. He's been sort of in and out of the starting formation. Uh, it's sort of been a game of musical chairs going on with the, uh, Lucas Elario all season, with either one of them starting, but never both of them really. And it's going to be interesting to see in Leverkusen when when the new coach arrives, because I think both Elario and Chick have great attacking qualities. And, uh, you know, if you somehow find a way of making both of them work together, that could really present a very potent attacking threat for Leverkusen. Yep, yep, that would be interesting. You know, Patrick Schick, because of his size and because of his finishing abilities, I think convinces people that he is uh, a, a number nine, which, of course, he can be. But I think he can be something else, too. I think, you know, the way he comes deep, uh, to, to receive the ball and his, his skill with uh, combination play. I have no idea what um, Gerardo Sewana, or if, I don't know if I've even said that right. He's, he's Swiss, but, you know, I don't know what the derivation of that name is. But what he has in mind for Leverkusen, but um, it would be interesting, to say the least, uh, a side that had two goal scorers of that qual- quality in, in the, if, if they could make that work. Yeah, and I mean, given that he's Swiss, you probably cannot pronounce that name incorrectly because there are obviously, uh, I think, four different languages that spoken in, in Switzerland. So, and and even their German is like you know prone to <laughs> inverting vowels and you know basically creating an anti-language so that other other speakers of German from other parts of the German-speaking world can't understand. Grüezi. Uh, to all our Swiss listeners, um, yes, Swiss German is notoriously difficult to understand if you know any sort of German. And my my sort of German skills are are fading, uh, but uh, Swiss German, even when I when my German skills were at that at, at their height, I could never quite make out what these people were saying and if they were in pain or if they were enjoying themselves. Really, that's exactly the way they want it. Any other shout-outs for some other Bundesliga performers? Uh, I mean, maybe um, on the second, you know, match day, I guess, as, as we can look at it. There's been a lot of uh, tongues wagging over Alexander Isak, who, of course, is not uh, a Bundesliga player anymore, but he might well be in the near future. I think uh, Borussia Dortmund are giving some thought to uh, exercising that buyback clause that they have in his, uh, you know, the deal that they made with uh, Betis, was it Betis? Or, did he play for Betis or Sociedad? Real Sociedad. Um, See, Sociedad, yeah. Well, maybe maybe a shout-out to, to Marcus Berg. <laughs> Next time you'll get that goal. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he, he, man, he's, 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 he's one of the best missers there is. I mean, he fitted perfectly <laughs> at HSV. I never, I, I, I never quite understood why he left them, uh, to be honest. Uh, shout outs to, to Bundesliga players. I, I think that, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm currently watching uh, Spain against uh, Poland and uh, Danny Olmo is having a, a quite decent game. Robert Lewandowski, not so much, not getting a lot of joy so far. It's 1-0 at halftime as we are recording. Yeah, any other Bundesliga players or former Bundesliga players? Um, 
Uh, I have to say watching yeah. Kevin De Bruyne uh, come on and basically turn the game around for Belgium. Um, obviously, I, I know where to find him when I want to watch him. <laughs> but I wish I could watch him in the Bundesliga again. And it reminded me, especially the, the goal that he scored. He has the, the this penchant for making driven balls from like the edge of the area look like tap-ins. Like he, when you see him running onto a ball like that, you're just like, oh, that's in. That's in for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those, those, those Bundesliga players in the Danish side have been terrific, even though they've got two losses so far. Uh, I think Seaman Chaz is probably going to be one of the players of the tournament, no matter what, for the way he behaved. Uh, I think Thomas Delaney actually had a decent game against Belgium as well. So yeah, I think, I think uh, the Danish players, uh, in, in, from the Bundesliga, um, have been doing quite well despite two losses so far additionally i i think that you know some some of the austrian players um they they impressed me uh during that match against the netherlands even though it didn't went in there didn't go in their favor so yeah i think think those are pretty much the best shout outs so far and uh one shout another shout out that i'm sort of reserving for a player that isn't playing at the tournament but he could have played at the tournament is for vincenzo grifo who um nearly made that cut for 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 the italy side and uh he was just at the cusp at the cusp of you know getting into that squad and um he got he got called in for the provisional group didn't he he did he did and he has i think he has been called up 10 times for internationals for for italy and played in five of those so you know he's been he's been really close to getting in into that squad and uh obviously it would have been fun to see a Freiburg player uh, in that tournament, and uh, additionally another former Bundesliga player who's uh, sort of been quite good, um, which we ne- necessarily haven't seen in the Bundesliga is Shiro Immobile. I think you know decent tournament so far by him. Yeah, we didn't we didn't see the best of Tiro uh, at Dortmund, but we we have learned the error of our ways. Yeah, and you know follow him on Instagram because um, it's terrific. He's always playing FIFA whilst, uh, you know, posting pictures of his girlfriend. <laughs> wow, that, that, that sets him apart from all the other footballers. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of another one who, who does that. All right. That is all for this edition of Talking Foosball this time out, uh, this this Euro 2020 in 2021 edition. We're sort of uh, two-thirds of the way through the, the, the group stage, and, and, you know, we'll have more to come as the uh, tournament presses on. Really good to have you back on nick as always yeah it's great it's great to be back and uh you know what um you should book me more often for for this non-comprehensive uh comprehensible review preview series and uh then germany will get good results because whenever i come on uh germany seems to be winning i feel you i feel you well you know we, we got another group stage game coming up let's uh let's make it a date Wildhagen. Let's do that. All right. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast. Give us five stars. Say thanks to your friends. Show us all the love that you know that we love. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.